And uh, he replied that actually it's quite cheap, cheaper than calling locally, he said. Uh, runs about, well, I think he said 70 Kenya shillings an hour, which is equivalent to 65, 70, 75 cents over here, depending on the exchange rate. So for, let's say, 70 cents an hour, they can tune in. So when I say all, I don't know uh, who all's out there today. I hope they were able to make contact. They seem to be able to call me when they need to fairly uh, ably without any difficulties and so on, and the, the transmission is good on a telephone call. So I assume they were able to dial in, and uh, of course Elijah and Braddocks would have to translate uh, for others who would be there, uh, and both of them speak pretty good English. So welcome if you're there, Elijah and Braddocks, and those who might be with you. I hope that uh, it can come through okay and loud and clear. Well, let's get on then to Deuteronomy 23. Uh, we left off last time at the end of 22. That's kind of a difficult, I guess, thing to start into chapter 23 right cold. It's, a, it's not a, a very pleasant thing to consider. Anyway, uh, 23 and verse 1, He that is wounded in the stones or has his private member cut off, shall not enter into the congregation of the eternal. Now, why that particular uh, situation? What if your arm was off or your leg was off? Uh, you could still come. But if you were uh, somehow impaired in the private section of your body, you were not allowed. I gave that a little thought. And we need to be able to translate what we see here to a spiritual situation and understand what God might have been thinking and how it might impact us spiritually today. Uh, and several of these down here will bear comment along those lines, but this is what it starts with. And my thought on it goes this way. Uh, Israel was a physical nation, and God had told them that they were to replenish the earth, that they were to be a great nation as the sands of the sea and the stars of heaven. So they were, in that sense, to be productive uh, as people with lots of children and grow into a great nation. Now, if that ability to reproduce were impaired then that impaired uh, the nation in its growth. Now, that might not seem, you would think, to be an important thing, but let's translate that to a spiritual circumstance. God is our Father. Uh, he produced a son that he sent here with us. Now, the son had always lived, but uh, he had not been called son until he came here as our brother and so on, and became a son at that point. Now, God's purpose is to reproduce and replenish spiritually, to have a holy spiritual family of God, uh, or of gods, let's say. 
It is even says you are God's, or that is your purpose, that is your calling in life. That's why God created us, is not to remain physical forever, because we do die, and then we're gone. But in the resurrection, we would be raised and changed into spirit. So his whole purpose in creating Adam and Eve in the beginning was to reproduce himself and have an eternal spiritual family of God-beings. That's the great mystery of the Bible. It's a mystery that very few understand. But he says when Christ returns and the resurrection occurs, or the change if you're still alive, that this mortal will be turned into immortal and this flesh into spirit. So that is his goal and his purpose. Now, let's say we're a part of the church of God today, and we are doing something that would impair us from being reproduced as a child of God in the kingdom of God. So it is that reproductive system that is important. God has set a system now through repentance and baptism and growth and overcoming whereby we can be a part of his kingdom someday. So he is reproducing himself, and that's what I think elevates this particular verse to the status it has here in Deuteronomy 23. A finger or a toe or something of that nature missing would not keep you out of the congregation. But the reproductive organs did keep you out. And anything that would keep us out of the kingdom of God and reproducing in ourselves, in that sense, another God being would fit into this category. So, as I've said many times, nothing in the Old Testament is done away with. The application on many, many things has changed. But the principle is still there. So when we see something like this, you think, well, you know, what does that mean? We need to think in terms of spiritual principles and what God's ultimate goal is and his purpose in putting us here, and then try to understand something that seems as strange and as odd as this uh, in those terms. So there might be more to this or something I don't fully grasp, but in trying to translate it into spiritual meaning, uh, that seems to be to me to be uh, an understanding that is important. And let's, let's understand that overall purpose of God as we read the next few verses as well. A bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the eternal, even to his tenth generation shall he not enter into the congregation of the eternal. Of course, God, uh, from the beginning, had a great sanctity with marriage, and they were to cleave to one another until death, and all children were supposed to be legitimate children of legitimate married parents. That's the way God set things up. Uh, we have a society today who does not, or which does not think much of it one way or another. Uh, Fifty years ago, it was still a great shame, uh, and girls were even still being shipped somewhere else to relatives or whatever until the pregnancy was done. And you didn't hide it forever, <laughs> you know. Sooner or later, the back-to-home folks found out that, and everybody knew, if you sent so-and-so suddenly to a girl's school or to a, her aunt's house in 
Timbuktu or somewhere that uh, what the problem was. But it was shameful, as God set it up to be. And our society today accepts it. It's no big deal to us, but it is to God. And they were not allowed in for ten generations into the congregation of Israel. Now, we are to be sons of God. We're sons by birth, in that sense, sons of creation. But we are to be spiritual sons in His family. And He will not allow any there who do not have a legitimate father. The Pharisees, unless they repented, would not be there. Because he says, you are of your father the devil. You worship you know not what. So God has taken a world that has been worshiping Satan since Adam and Eve, right on down. That has been the God of this world. They listen to him instead of their father in heaven. And mankind has been listening to Satan ever since. Whether they're religious or non-religious or whatever, if they do not have the truth of this word, then they worship they know not what. Now, you don't look upon them as the occult, you know, uh, necessarily. They're not openly Satan-worshipping. It's just that they are not acquainted with and don't understand the true God. He gives His Spirit to them that obey. Obey what? The commandments, the words of God. He does not give his, his Spirit to people who believe the Ten Commandments are done away with. Because if they believe they're done away, they're not obeying them. Now, they're doing it in ignorance. They're deceived into thinking it's grace only or whatever. Not uh, works included. So, the whole world, in that sense, has been a bastard. They are not worshiping the legitimate, true father. So they have a wrong father, if you will, an, uh, an illegal father. And that must be fixed. Now, spiritually speaking, God does away with the ten-generation situation. Uh, any human that he calls, and it has to come from him, he has to open their mind to the truth. Once they accept his way, his truth, repent of Satan's and this world's way of thinking and living, and begin to get their lives in line with God's words, then they are accepting the legitimate Father of heaven and earth. Then once repentance is essentially complete and they're baptized, repentance never ends. Overcoming never ends. Uh, repentance means change. And we're never completely converted in this life. But let's say essentially converted, or understanding enough and following enough of God's ways to be legitimately baptized. If we had to be completely converted, none of us would yet be baptized because we're not there. But we need God's Spirit to help us become more and more converted. But at any rate, when we deny the God of this world, accept God's way, and begin to follow Him and we are born anew uh, through death and resurrection symbolically in baptism, then we are leading a new life with a new father. And we become, at that point, legitimate Christians, true followers 
of our Father in heaven. So, everyone on earth is going to have an opportunity at salvation. A few now, the first fruits, quite a few in the millennium, and then billions in the great white throne judgment who will be resurrected to physical life and be able to legitimize their existence by accepting the true Father. So, when it is all said and done, every human being who has ever lived will have an opportunity to have the deception removed and have a true opportunity to serve God and accept Him as their Father instead of Satan. Satan will be bound during the millennium, so it will make it a little easier on those people. And in the great white throne judgment, he's only loose for a short season. So they will have opportunity to learn the truth and accept our true Father in heaven. And if they do not, for whatever reason, they rebel against God, they will not be in his congregation ever. So God is simply, on a spiritual level, doing what he decreed on a physical level back with physical people who did not have opportunity of salvation. So, if we're a bastard of this world and of Satan's system, we have to come out of it and be legitimized. Otherwise, we cannot enter the eternal congregation of God. That's the way it has to be. And even uh, a race here, an Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the eternal. Even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the eternal forever. Now, I, I haven't really checked the Hebrew closely on that, but it says even to the tenth generation and forever, meaning even the tenth generation, apparently. After that, they still cannot enter in. Why? Because they met you not with bread and with water in the way when you came forth out of Mitzrayim, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor of Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless, the eternal your God would not hearken to Balaam, but the eternal your God turned the curse into a blessing to you, because the eternal your God has loved you. You shall not seek their peace, nor their good or prosperity, all your days forever. They were to have nothing to do with the Ammonites and Moabites forever. Sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? But it follows the situation about bastards coming into the congregation. And these people did what? They tried to get them to worship Baal, Satan, and pull them away from their true father. So it's in the same breath almost as a bastard or someone wounded who cannot reproduce. God wants us to produce. He wanted Israel to produce, and they, he wanted them to have a legitimate father. And here was Balaam trying to pull them away from the true father. So that was condemned conclusively and for always as a physical nation. Now, isn't that the same, again, spiritually? That if someone... Be they on other people, uh, they could even be Israelites with the spiritual connotation, physically speaking, who try to pull us away from the truth of God. 
They're putting themselves in that position when they try to pull us away from truth. Beware any who would pull you from the truths you have learned, because they are putting themselves in great jeopardy with God, because he is the Father. And anyone who tries to preach false doctrine is putting themselves in the position of following Satan. That's just the bottom line. They may think they're following God like the Pharisees did, but they weren't. Christ told them very clearly they weren't. Uh, That makes someone a wolf in sheep's clothing if they're teaching contrary to this word. They may think they're teaching correctly. I don't want to be that. And if I'm teaching something wrongly, I want to know about it and I want to fix it. We fix quite a few things. And I'm sure we have more to fix. But let us be very, very careful that we do not teach anything contrary to this word. And examine it very closely to make sure that is the case. So I'm not willingly teaching anything wrong. But if I find from whatever source it can be shown in the Bible that I'm wrong, I think I have a pretty good record of changing it. And I don't seem to care what effect it might have. People will either accept it or they will reject it. They will either stay or they will leave. But we will find the truth of a matter, whatever that matter might be. And you should feel free if you see something you think is contrary to Scripture to let me know. If you see something you think is wrong, uh, you don't whisper or talk or try to pull people your way with it. You bring it, and we examine it. We find out in the light of the Bible what is the truth. We did it with Passover. We've done it with the calendar. We've done it with Emmanuel. We've done it with a whole bunch of things. So I want that to happen. Some things I think God has shown me understanding on. Other things have come from people who were not even a part of this group and still aren't for that matter, but if what they brought fits this word, the source does not matter. I've heard the excuse used, well, I'm not an apostle, I can't change doctrine. If it's wrong, if it's not what the Bible says, you've got to change it. You don't have to be an apostle to do that. It's what the book says, so do it. It isn't, you know, Peter and Paul had an argument about circumcision. They had arguments about whether Gentiles should be in the church. They were apostles. But they were wrong about what God wanted, and wrong in perhaps translating from the physical in the Old Testament to the New Testament and understanding it in the spirit of the law. So, there was a big argument, and it wound up having to be changed, because one or the other in each argument that came up was wrong. But what God says is all that matters. And I don't care what the source is, if we can see in the Bible that it's wrong, we'll fix it. We have to swallow, I have to, if I have any pride about something that's my doctrine or whatever, I have to swallow that and say, what does God say? That's all that matters. So if someone comes 
teaching something wrong, which has happened even recently. I went through the Bible and showed you what God says. Now, do you still listen or give credence or listen to what has clearly been proved as wrong and still listen to those who are preaching wrong? Could you possibly be heading into the category that God is talking about here if you do that? Now, if you think I'm wrong, we need to sit down and you need to show me where I'm wrong. Not just whisper, talk, talk, talk among yourselves, because that does no good and it does a great deal of harm, because it spreads negativity and doubt and distrust and frustration. So, do things in an honorable, above-board, proper way. And we will find out what God says about any subject that comes up. In other words, let's do things decently and in order to be sure we all are doing what is right, not just two or three and then they break off and two or three more break off over this and somebody else over that without ever even truly bringing it up and discussing it carefully and not just discussing, but checking what God says. And I, I try to do that very carefully. On that Passover issue, I knew that would not be accepted by very many people in the greater church of God. But if that's what the book says, then that's the way we have to do it, even if it stands in the face of 99.999% of the people. It only matters what God says. That's our position. So if anybody pulls us away from this doctrine, John put it very clearly in Second John 10. If any come and bring not this doctrine, do not accept them, and don't bid them Godspeed. Don't allow them in your house. That means by telephone, by TV, by uh, email, in any way, or physically, for that matter. It's not to be done. God made it very clear through the Apostle John. So, we don't need to be condemning and judgmental of people if they don't believe everything we believe. And it doesn't mean we can't say hello on the street. But at the same time, it means that we don't get into spiritual conversations that may be contrary to what we have proved and believe as a body. We are a body, remember. And you cannot exist apart from the body as a member. You can't do it. Christ made it very clear that over the arm or the leg or the little toe or whatever we are, we have to be connected to the body to survive spiritually. And we have to be connected to him as the vine, and we're the branches. And if we are cut off from the vine by false teaching or sin or whatever, then we wither and die spiritually. We have to stay connected. And if we get disconnected, we need to really hasten to get reconnected, lest we shrivel and die spiritually. So, these are very, very important principles back here that are being brought out by Moses in terms of things that were taught in Leviticus and, well, from Genesis through uh, Numbers, and then reviewed and summarized here in the book of Deuteronomy. 
So anything that would pull us away from God and his truth is something that has to be put aside forevermore. And Satan is the leading candidate for that. He is going to be bound forevermore so that he can no longer influence uh, the family of God. He is given a certain amount of time, and his time is almost up. And boy, when he gets cast down for the last time, there in Revelation 12, he is going to immediately come after true believers of God. He will try to kill us all, and it will be a time to flee for our very lives. The abomination will be set up, and we will head for a place that God will protect. So, anything short of this word in any way, we need to avoid like the plague, the same way we would avoid Satan the devil. Because thy word is truth. Remember that. This word is the truth. And if something is being taught, like Balaam did, that is contrary to this word, we need to prove it one way or another and stick to what is true. God had a pretty strong sentence here for those Moabites and Ammonites uh, who had tried to lead Israel astray. Verse 7, You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. Now, there are people today who hate Zionism and who hate uh, the tribe of Esau. They are the Ashkenazi, or Ashkenazi, if you will, Jews of today, essentially. There may be some crossover in, in birth, but essentially they are the descendants of Esau. They're not Jews, even though they claim to be Jews, but they came from Edom or Esau instead. And there are people today on the internet who abhor them, who want them all destroyed. Now, should that be our attitude? Let's understand. I want to go back to Genesis 27 just for a few moments. Now, we all know the story of Jacob and Esau and how Jacob and Rachel uh, deceived Esau and took advantage of him and took his birthright for a bowl of red stew. But then, I'm in Exodus, that won't work. But then the plot thickened, and he also stole the blessing by posing as hairy, putting a, a hide with hair on it, on his arms, and cooking up some venison and presenting it to his father Isaac. And then Jacob was very, very upset. And he had a great and exceeding cry in chapter 27, verse 34, when Isaac explained to him that his brother Jacob had come and taken his blessing away, the blessing of the firstborn. And he supplanted him. His name, Jacob, means supplanter. Now, Isaac, verse 39, his father answered and said to him, now, this is to Esau, because he was casting about, trying to find a blessing for Esau, since Jacob had stolen it. Now, God intended Jacob to be the one through whom Israel was produced in any case, but Jacob did not go about it right. He should have waited for God to take care of the situation, not do it through lying and subtlety himself. So Esau was misused, abused, and betrayed. 
defrauded, if you will. So Isaac, after having given virtually everything to Jacob, tried to find a blessing for Esau, and here's what he came up with, verse 39. Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth. So he would dwell in areas of wealth uh, and, well, wealth, that's good enough, and of the dew of heaven from above. So an area that had was productive. And by your sword shall you live and shall serve your brother. So the Ashkenazi Jews, the descendants of Esau, have been persecuted pretty much ever since and have yet been in places where money is and was. They're known in New York and Miami and other places, Los Angeles, for being among the wealthy. And in Washington, D.C. now, and London and other places like that, they have dwelt in the wealthy areas, and they've been involved in having that wealth. I mean, just dwelling there and having somebody else have it isn't a blessing, but if you dwell there and have the wealth, then it is a blessing. People have despised them, and they are involved in the destruction of our nation today. Let's understand that. Finish reading this. And it shall come to pass, when you shall have the, the dominion, that you shall break his yoke from off your neck. So in the end time, when they wind up with dominion, God says they will break Jacob's yoke off their neck. So from the time this was given, Jacob was blessed, and we, as a descendant of Jacob in this country, Ephraim, have been blessed above all nations on earth, the vine running over the wall, as Genesis 49 explains, and so on, and been put in the firstborn category by God. But we have been taken over by Edomite bankers who are controlling things and calling the shots in our own government today. They are in the fat places, and they are going to break the yoke off their neck, and they are going to be in control. Read the book of Obadiah, I won't go there, but it shows how they will have victory over Jacob, us, the, the nations of Israel, Northwest Europe, and America is the leader of those, and they will conquer us, or be part of that entity, the beast power that does conquer us, the New World Order. So they're part and parcel with it, and they have been uh, plotting against Jacob and Israel ever since. So that is the attitude of hatred and destruction. And then God says in Obadiah, after they punish us as part of our punishment for our sins, God will then deal with them and deal very severely with them for it. But we are not to abhor them. Now, let's understand that in the context of what Jacob, our forefather, did to Esau. And he was a brother. So we are not to abhor uh, Esau for the attitude that he has. See, an attitude of negativity and hate is an ungodly attitude, no matter who has it and where it comes from. That is not the way God is. 
That is not the way he thinks. It is not hatred, uh, envy, uh, negativity is not a fruit of the Spirit of God. Do we understand that? It is not. Peace, love, and joy are. So any time we allow ourselves to begin to have animosity, uh, hatred for, negativity, talk down with each other, we are leaving the Spirit of God. We are squelching it, or as Paul put it, quenching the Spirit. We're not walking in the Spirit, but we're following the works of the flesh. Anytime any one of us gets in a negative attitude, we're walking in the flesh. And we must remedy that as quickly as possible. Esau, the Edomites, the Zionists, we'll call them today, the Ashkenazi Jews, of which most in the nation of Israel over there in the Middle East today are. There are some Sephardic Jews who are probably true Jews by birth of the tribe of Judah. But the vast majority are Edomites of Esau. And they have great control over our own government and have for a long, long time. And they are in very high positions of authority in our government. Uh, chiefs of staff, ambassadors, uh, senators and congressmen and so on, uh, secretaries of state in various high offices they have held, advisors to the presidents and so on. Uh, and they are going to be a great part of the destruction of this country. But God tells us not to abhor them or despise them. That attitude that they have came, in a sense, honestly or legitimately, it should have been repented of. Understand that. Esau should not have done what Esau did. He had been wronged, yes. No doubt about it. He had utterly been wronged. And yet, instead of accepting that, he had an attitude toward his brother and toward his parents after that. He went out and married outside the tribe of Israel on purpose because uh, Isaac and his mother had told Jacob to marry within Israel, within their own kin. And Esau saw that. He says, well, they don't want me marrying outside, so he went out and did it on purpose, just out of vengeance and hatred and animosity. You know, that never gets us anywhere, brethren. Esau finally saw how bitter, how angry he was. And who was he harming the most? Jacob? No. He was harming himself. Ultimately, Esau was even harming his chances at eternal life. Paul makes it very clear there in Hebrews 12. But we are not to be as Esau was, who realized that even though he had been wronged, he had the wrong attitude and needed to repent, and he sought it bitterly and with tears. He tried so hard to get over his negative, hateful attitude toward Jacob and toward his parents and toward all Israel, and he could not do it. And we have a spiritual warning in Hebrews 12 not to allow ourselves to get into that kind of attitude. So, God said don't abhor the Edomite. Don't 
have an attitude of negativity or hatred ourselves. Because if we do, then we are not walking in the Spirit. We're walking after Satan's way. And we're harming ourselves and our chance to be reproduced in the kingdom of God. We need to understand, brethren, what it is that we do when we talk each other down. When we go behind each other's backs. When we gossip and say scurrilous things or negative things about each other. I've preached on it and preached on it, but you know we still do it. And we do not have what it takes to approach each other and discuss things and solve them. But we whisper behind each other's backs. I think I'm beginning to understand why it is so hard for church people to quit that. I don't have time to go in it in depth today. But I think if you will look at the term self-righteousness, you will be hitting very, very near the crux of the situation. Self-righteousness, I'm right, you're wrong, leads us to judging, condemnation, and negativity. And I think probably the most, one of the most common and deepest sins and the greater church of God, going all the way back to worldwide, was self-righteousness. God has called us, and he has given us the truth. Therefore, we're better than the rest of the world. And that is not true. We're no better than any other human being walking the face of the earth. If anything, we were the weak and the base, and God called us in hopes of making something out of us. So we came as nothing. And we need to understand that. And when we start lifting ourselves up above each other, we are self-righteous. It's pride, it's vanity, and my way of thinking is better than your way of thinking. That is self-righteousness. And I think that is a root cause of our inability to quit talking about each other and putting each other down. Think about that carefully. Maybe I'll have a sermon, a series of sermons about it. I don't know. But if we're going to stop something, we need to understand, if at all possible, why we do it. Why we keep falling into the same old ditch over and over and over again. Why we can't come out of it. If you understand the spiritual implications and what we're really doing, then maybe we can find a way to resolve the issue. It's rooted in idolatry, I understand that. Idolatry is the greatest sin of all. But any time we put self above God or above our brethren, not esteeming them better than ourselves, but esteeming them worse than ourselves, we're walking in the flesh. We cannot walk in the flesh. We must walk in the Spirit and produce the love, the joy, the peace that God requires and that His Spirit causes. So anytime you find yourself in a negative attitude, think of Esau and think of who Esau was really hurting. And when you talk down about somebody, 
you're actually hurting yourself worse than you're hurting them. Understand that. You really are. Because you are jeopardizing your chance to be a part of the kingdom of God. And anyone who does that will not be in the kingdom of God. Notice Revelation 22, verse 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments. I thought those were done away with. This is the last chapter in the Bible. Blessed are those that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life. Eternal life, the tree of life, is connected right here with the Ten Commandments. And may enter in through the gates into the city. He's, the whole context here is about the heavenly Jerusalem that's coming down. For outside are dogs, that was referred to as Gentiles in, those, in terminology in those days, and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loves and makes a lie. They're not going to be there. Now, does that mean there won't be any Gentiles by blood in the kingdom of God? Absolutely not. God included the Gentiles there in Romans 11 and other places as part of the true church of spiritual Israel. So it doesn't matter what our physical blood is at all anymore. A spiritual bastard or a spiritual Ammonite or Moab, Moabite or a spiritual Edomite will not be in the kingdom of God. We have to be converted we have to be filled with the Spirit of God and walking in the Spirit, not producing the works of the flesh. Because if we're not keeping His commandments in the way that He says, we will not be in the kingdom of God. Let's go back to chapter 21, verse 6. He said to me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So there will be a few who go there, and I don't want you or me to be one of them. So we have to repent and overcome whatever our sins may be. And really, <coughs> all this in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, translates into spiritual terms. Let's go on back to Deuteronomy 23 then. He said in verse 7, not to abhor the Edomite. We've discussed that. You shall not abhor... A Mitzriamite, because you were a stranger in his land. So we are not to have hatred or animosity against, essentially this would be the black races. It's not to be there. There's no, not to be any racial prejudice. There's not to be any hatred or abhorrence of somebody of a different race, physically, in blood, uh, that is not Israelite by blood. So they were not to abhor them. They were strangers in their land. Now later they became slaves, but understand what God is referring to here was when they went into Mitzrayim. They were starving to death. 
God had sent Joseph there ahead of time, and he had risen up through the ranks until he was in charge of all that Pharaoh was doing and basically was ruling the whole empire. And Jacob, I mean Joseph, invited his family into Mitzrayim, and there they survived and ultimately thrived, and later on became slaves. Well, God delivered them from the slavery. But those are things that just happen. But he said, remember all the way back, if you have prejudice, if you have animosity, if there's any racism in you, remember back, you went there of your own volition, or you would have starved to death. And God had provided the Hamite people, the Mitzrayimites in particular, to preserve Israel. So why despise or abhor them? They saved your lives. Later on, they made you slaves, but you were delivered from that by God. In other words, it doesn't matter how bad it was. Slavery, abject slavery, being beaten, being killed. And just before they left, having the straw and everything taken away and still having to put out the same number of bricks and so on and so forth. Being persecuted, being hated, beaten, and killed. There is no room in the Christian mind for any kind of hatred or animosity or abhorrence, no matter how badly anyone might have treated us. There's no room for it. All racial prejudice has to go away. All of it. Once we enter the spiritual family of God, the church, there is no room for any prejudice whatsoever. And remember, the Mitzrayimite here and the Edomite were not part of Israel they were just physical. But they weren't part of physical Israel. They were not to abhor them either. So let's translate that spiritually, that we may be part of spiritualites, Israelites, or Israel today, as members of God's church. But we are not to abhor the world around us who have not yet been given that opportunity. We cannot hate, we cannot despise, we cannot be against the people on this earth, no matter what their religion, their politics, their race, or anything about them, we cannot despise. And we should not be negative toward. God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten Son that the world ultimately would not perish, but have eternal life. God loves every human being that walks or has walked the face of this earth, and every last one of them is going to have an opportunity of salvation before his plan is complete. And we understand that there is an order of resurrections, and everyone will have their chance. So God does not despise anyone. Yes, he hates sin. He does not hate sinners. Let's have that clear in our minds. 
There is no room for negativity. There is no room for scurrilous comments. And we so easily can put down people out of this world, can't we? We can put each other down, who are the called out candidates to be the first fruits of the resurrection of God. And we put each other down. And we lift ourselves above the rest of the world because we have the truth and put them down. Negativity is not a godly emotion. Understand that. It is not a godly emotion. Every one of us who has them, and all of us do, always or from time to time, have to repent of that. We have to walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. And we need to pray diligently and frequently that God fill us with His Spirit, that we walk in the Spirit and produce the fruit of the Spirit, not the works of the flesh, which are negativity and put down and lying and cheating and stealing and everything else that's sinful. But it's all about attitude is what it's all about. There's no room to hate even the politicians and the false religious leaders of this world. What did Christ himself say? Don't fight them. Don't fight them. Let them be. If they're not against us, they're for us. In other words, they're not hurting us, so leave them alone. Get your tongue off of them, you sons of thunder. We need a positive approach to each other, esteeming each other above ourselves, and even a positive approach to the world out there. That doesn't mean we're to mingle and to fellowship with them and to be a part of their society. God forbids that. But at the same time, we should not despise them because they are also the children of God who will have their opportunity at salvation when their time comes up. In other words, I guess it boils down to there should be no room for any type of negative approach or hatred or animosity or negativity in our minds for anyone as a human being. We may not like what they're doing. We may despise the sin, and we have to see and understand that sometime. But we can't let ourselves get in a negative approach to the person, no matter how despicable they may be. God will deal with each and every human being that has ever drawn breath in his own time and way. What right do we have to have an attitude of hatred toward a potential son of God? Absolutely none. God makes it very clear back here that no matter what walk of life, no matter what they had done to us, we had no right to abhor or despise. Very, very deep spiritual lessons are to be learned here in the book of Deuteronomy based on what God said about the physical nation. We simply have to upgrade it to the spiritual application. Verse 8, the children that are begotten of them shall enter into the congregation of the eternal in their third generation. Now, a bastard, uh, 
an Ammonite or Moabite, because they had done so much detrimental to Israel, couldn't come in to the tenth generation or even forever. <coughs> but an Edomite or an Egyptian could come in after the third generation. So God gives degrees here of punishment or of keeping people out or disfellowshipped, if you will, based on the severity of the sin. Uh, in the particular case of Esau and of Mitzrayim, they did not blatantly sin against Israel in the same way that the Ammonite and Moabite had tried to, to lead them directly to Baal. They had drifted into slavery in Mitzrayim. Esau had had some detestable things done to him by his mother and brother. So God did not punish them as severely. So he makes the punishment fit the crime. Verse 9, When the host goes forth against your enemies, then keep you from every wicked thing. So they would go into battle, uh, but God warned them not to partake of wickedness with the people that they came into association with there, whether they defeated them and took some of their wives as their own wives, as we read last week, <coughs> or, or their riches or whatever. They were to be very careful to follow whatever God's instruction for that particular battle was. And some, he said, you can have the spoil. Some, he said, don't touch anything. He varied it depending on his purpose of, uh, in the circumstance at the time. So he said, you need to be very careful not to partake of the wicked thing. How does that translate today? We've got a world around us that is lost in Satan's culture and his way, and we have to be very careful not to partake of their wickedness. We've talked about that a lot. I won't go into it in more detail now, but the principle is here. Verse 10, If there be among you any man that is not clean by reason of uncleanness that chances him by night, then shall he go abroad out of the camp. He shall not come within the camp. He's speaking here of nocturnal emission uh, that a man can sometimes have. And it made them, in that sense, ceremonially unclean until they were washed and would be clean by the following evening. Here again, it's the reproductive system that he's talking about. And misused or abused in a wrong way then becomes sinful and is against the reproduction of ourselves as part of the family of God. So he singles this uh, particular part of the anatomy, the reproductive system, again. And I, I think we understand the principle now, so I won't uh, go into that further. But it shall be, verse 11, when evening comes on, he shall wash himself with water, and when the sun is down, he shall come into the camp again. You shall have a place else also without the camp, where you shall go forth abroad, and you shall have a paddle upon your weapons, and it shall be when you will ease yourself abroad, you shall dig therewith, and shall turn back and cover that which comes from you. So, uh, the cats scratch and cover, but we are to take, at that time, when they were wandering through the wilderness, they were to take a shovel and cover. Uh, we do it today with uh, toilets and flush down into septic tanks or sewer systems or whatever. Uh, we don't just go out and potty on the ground and leave it. And that's what he's talking about here. 
so God didn't want the camp filthy with feces as the subject here. <clears throat> For the eternal your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore shall your camp be holy, that he see no unclean thing in you and turn away from you. God didn't want to walk through the camp and see manure, human manure, laying on the ground. He wanted that to be taken care of, buried, out of sight, out of smell. Uh, it's offensive to the five senses of man to see such a sight. And there again, the spiritual principle is anything which is unholy, that which is waste, that which is sin, uh, needs to be gotten rid of. It does, needs to be hidden. Uh, that doesn't mean you sweep it under the rug and continue it, but we get rid of it, whatever it is. We get it out of sight. Now, God even tells us that it is the glory of God to cover a matter, but it is the honor of kings to uncover it. Now, that I've had people try to translate that or interpret that as saying that it's okay to dig into people's sins because that's what kings do. No, God is contrasting his approach to that of human kings. The honest, spiritual, righteous king covers a matter, whereas a human, physical, walking in the work of the flesh person uncovers. We need to be like God. He wants all sin covered. And I've used this analogy before. Christ's sacrifice and his blood being spilled was for the remission of all our sins. His blood is there as a continual sacrifice, as a cover for our sins that we still sin. It is an eternal sacrifice. So God... In his love, in his mercy, in forgiveness, sent his son here to live a perfect life and to die and have his blood poured out on the ground beneath the stake to cover our sin. What right do you and I have? to dig around in Christ's blood looking for our neighbor's sin. What right do we have to spread, I think they sinned? I wonder if that's sin. And yap, yap, yap about each other about what our sins might be. I don't know how to get stronger than that. Without yelling... It's just a fact. My sins, your sins, are covered in the blood of the Almighty Savior. And we have absolutely no right to traffic in each other's sins. If you do, and you try to point out the sins of others, you are sinning. 
and your sin will have to come under the blood of Christ or you will die for it. That's the way God has it set up. So when we self-righteously judge each other or condemn each other, we are setting ourselves up as the judge that is idolatry. God, in His glory, covers our sins. Thank God. Who are we to cover, uncover them? Now, this is just a physical thing. My friends in high school and I laughed at when we read this in Deuteronomy and finally figured out what it was talking about. Oh, he meant to take a shovel and dig a hole and cover it up. Oh, that was a big... That was a big discovery. We, we interpreted the Scripture correctly. It's in King James English. It's hard for us as kids maybe to understand that, but then we got it. Oh, wow. The light came on. Well, I hope the spiritual light comes on. I hope I understand it better today by far than I did as a kid who suddenly figured out you're supposed to dig like a cat and cover God doesn't want to walk through the camp and see uncovered sin. He wants you and me daily to be on our knees asking forgiveness and mercy for our multitude of sins, attitudes, thoughts, words that we commit daily and bring them under the blood of the Lamb. And we are putting ourselves above God if we repeat sins that he has covered. And you don't know, do you? You don't know if somebody's repented. You don't know. You may not even know what their sin is. You may suspect, but you don't know. And if you do, if you saw something that outright was a sin, you don't know if that person repented of that. You don't know if they asked forgiveness. You don't know if they're still doing it. Be careful. Lest you die over their sin. Because you, like God, will not forgive it and move on. You know, God tells us very clearly in the book of Ecclesiastes that every day He gives us a clean slate we wake up in the morning clean. That's the way these ordinances were set up. You were unclean till sundown. And then you were cleansed. I haven't read that in a long time. Let's go back and see if I can find that. That's a good one. If I can find Lamentations. Chapter 3, verse 21. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. Hope is one of the big three. Faith, hope, and love, right? Hope is very, very important. We need hope or we have trouble surviving spiritually. It is of the Eternal's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
We need to be like God, brethren. We need to give hope to our brethren through encouragement and strengthening and encouragement instead of talking them down. Be like God. Have the attitude God has. His compassions fail not. He gives us a new chance, a new hope every morning. Are we that merciful? Are we that compassionate that we can give our brothers and sisters right here a new start every morning? Yesterday is gone. You know, it can't be changed. It can't be recovered. It cannot anything be done about it. Unless repeating it. <laughs> we don't have to repeat yesterday. <clears throat> but yesterday is gone. It doesn't exist anymore. As far as God's concerned, we have a new hope and a clean slate every day. A chance to overcome, to grow, to have our sins washed away in the blood of Christ. And to be clean after sundown at the beginning of the day. Pray that way, and pray for each other that way, and let's give each other compassion and mercy and forgiveness, and not add sin to sin by remembering each other's sin, or perceived sin, or whatever. Even if it's real sin, we have to have it in our hearts to forgive, to forget, to hide it, to cover it, and move on. There is no room for negativity in our minds and our emotions. It has to go away. Okay? Isn't that fair? Wouldn't you like to have a clean slate every morning? Don't we all say things? We say, oh man, I wish I hadn't said that. Do we think things? Oh, I wish I hadn't thought that. Do we find ourselves in wrong attitudes or glass half empty attitudes or whatever hope must spring eternal hope must be renewed every day just as faith and love need to be renewed every day so does hope and here in the book of lamentations God gives us hope and here back in Deuteronomy he says Cover it up, get it out of sight, get it out of smell, move on. Don't dig it up either. Okay? Cover that which comes forth from you. For the eternal your God walks, I read that, he doesn't want to see any unclean. <clears throat> you shall not deliver unto his master the servant which is escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you, even among you, in that place which he shall choose in one of your gates, where it likes him best, you shall not oppress him. So if somebody in a neighboring country or somewhere had a slave, and conditions were so bad that they finally found a way to escape, you weren't to turn them back to their master, but you were to give them freedom, let them serve, let them be a stranger in your land, and help take care of them, and do not oppress them. If somebody comes among us who have escaped the slavery of Satan in this world 
We are to accept them. We are not to oppress them. We are to take care of them. We are to help them, strengthen them, encourage them, be kind to them, be helpful to them. They are a stranger within our gates. Doesn't God even say that that's what second and third tithe have, tithe have a legitimate use for? Is taking care of the stranger in our gates, new people. Be sure that we don't offend. Be sure that we treat with kindness and love and gentleness. We're going to have a lot of new people come in pretty soon. I believe that. Are we prepared for that? Are we ready for that? Are our attitudes right? Or will we begin to find fault with and condemn and put down like we already do with each other all too often? How can God increase us if we're going to do the same thing to them that we do to each other? It doesn't make any sense. So if they escape where they are today and come, we had better have open arms and attitudes. Give them hope. Verse 17, There shall be no whore of the daughters of Israel, nor a sodomite of the sons of Israel. My margin in the Hebrew says a sodomitess. Uh, lesbianism, homosexuality of forms, and especially the one spot on the body is not a sexual organ, no matter what anybody might say. There is no room for, for perversion of any kind with God. You shall not bring the hire of a whore or the price of a dog into the house of the Eternal your God for any vow, for even both these are abominations to the Eternal your God. So if somebody earned money as a whore uh, or as a pimp or anything of that nature, it was not to be brought for God as a, an offering or to fulfill any vow before God. Uh, it's illegitimate merchandise. The dog here was speaking of someone who was a Gentile in that sense. You shall not lend upon usury to your brother, usury of money, usury of victuals, usury of anything that is lent upon interest, is the term we would use today. We're not allowed to charge each other interest. Uh, interest destroys us. Ask anybody who has a pocket full of credit cards that they've misused and who are in debt up to here or here uh, by buying things that they can't afford before they can afford them. And their finances get all out of whack. And then the usurers of this world, those who draw interest, will charge you anywhere from 7 or 8 to 30 percent, and you just stay in debt almost forever. So God did not want us didn't want Israel charging usury within the nation. They could charge the Gentile nations around them if they wanted, but they were not to do it in Israel. This nation, under the physical Old Testament covenant, should not allow within our borders interest, period, on anything that is sold. You think how much better economic situation we would have if people were not allowed to indulge their desires and wants when they can't afford it, or even things that they need and have to pay high interest on. It destroys your bank balance. It destroys your whole economic situation. Now, if we as a nation, America, 
charged interest of other nations, we would become rich and we would not be destroying our own selves. Our own government is paying interest. And if that interest rate goes up, which they're saying may happen soon, it will destroy us entirely because we won't even be able to pay the interest on the debt. The printing presses will go too far behind. God solved this problem a long time ago. All we got to do is follow God's way and things will be better. But this nation is bankrupting itself with everybody charging each other interest. Spiritually speaking, we should not be doing it uh, among ourselves in the church. Just it's a price, no interest at it. Forget it. Don't charge it. Verse 21, When you shall vow a vow to the eternal your God, you shall not slack to pay it. For the eternal your God will surely require it of you, and it will be a sin in you. Be careful what you vow. Be careful what you put your mind and hand to. God will hold you accountable. But if you shall forbear to vow, it shall be no sin in you. That which has gone out of your lips you shall keep and perform. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, Christ said. If you say it, you better do it. Not back off on it or half do it or, or sort of do it or say, well, I decided I can't do that. A handshake, a word of mouth, should be ironclad. Even a written contract is no better than the people who signed it. Because they'll break it. Our word should be good. If we tell somebody we'll do something, we should do it. If we say they will be there at a certain hour, we should be there at a certain hour. It is arrogant and selfish to be 15, 20 minutes, an hour, two hours a day late. We're considering our feelings and our desires and what we want, and we're not paying attention to them and what they want and what we promised. You know, you should, if you say you'll do something, you should do it. If it takes you longer, if it costs you time and money, so what? You said you would do it. And you said you would do it right. You didn't tell them you'd do it wrong, did you? I'll fix that for you, but I'll do it wrong. No, you didn't say that. Do it right and do it. I don't care if you wind up making ten cents an hour. You promised. I know when I was contracting, there were times I missed a bid. It took me a lot longer than I thought it would. And it might have cost me more materials than I estimated it would. But I felt honor-bound to finish the job no matter what. And sometimes it cost me. Sometimes I didn't make much per hour because... I was the one who screwed up. Now, there are times you can go to somebody and say, you know, I, I blew it on that, and uh, I missed that bid, and this, these things cost me a whole lot more than, than I thought they would. Would you mind paying a little extra because I screwed up? And maybe they will, and maybe they won't. But if they say, no, you bid it, you do it, you are honor-bound before God to fulfill your word. 
There's a lot of really important spiritual stuff here back in the book of Deuteronomy. God will hold you accountable. And when you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat grapes, your fill, at your own pleasure, but you shall not put any in your vessel. When you come into, your standi- come into the standing corn of your neighbor, then you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not move a sickle to their neighbor's standing corn. Oh, God provide. It's not stealing. If somebody's growing corn or grapes or whatever they may be growing in their garden or in their fields, it is not illegal and it is not stealing to go in and eat a tummy full. Fact. It's not stealing. Now, if you take a bag or a Walmart sack or something in there, or a bucket, and you fill it up and take it with you, that's stealing. But God made it so that if you were traveling or hungry or whatever, you could go into somebody's field or into their vineyard, and you could eat a tummy full, and it would not be wrong. I suspect that was happening with Christ's disciples when they were, you know, they got accused of harvesting on the Sabbath. They were just picking and eating. And it probably wasn't their field. They were following Christ around. They didn't have time to plant fields. That was somebody else's field they were in. But they weren't stealing eating a tummy full. So watch out. And I'm out of time, so let's stop right there.